Amen. Please be seated. Um, children ages four through third grade can um, go with uh, Mr. and Mrs. Ryerson to the fellowship hall for chapel. You can turn in your Bible to Romans chapter one. We'll look at the first uh, seven verses. And the text is also printed uh, in the bulletin for you. So, whether you're a, a Christian or not, you're probably well aware by now that Easter Sunday is the day when the church commemorates the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, if you're already a Christian, then you know that the resurrection is a central part of the gospel that you believe. It's the most wonderful thing that's ever happened. Um, but you might wonder about its significance in some ways. Um, has probably a, a lot of significance, but you might wonder about it. Why is it so important? Is God saying something to us by it, by the resurrection? Is it just a demonstration of God's power to do whatever he wants? Um, what does it mean in the grand scope of God's work in the world? What does it mean for us, for our lives? Uh, especially if you're considering the Christian faith, if you're not a Christian yet, um, considering uh, following Christ, then these might be some of your questions seems like a pretty big deal that Jesus rose from the dead, but why? Uh, what did God accomplish by it? Um, hopefully this morning will clarify some of these questions for you, or at least uh, remind you of some of the things that um, unfortunately seem too easy for us to forget. So let's pray, and then we'll read the scripture. Father, we come to you for help. You've given us your help. You've given us your word and your spirit. We ask that your spirit would use your word in our lives, that you would shape our minds and our hearts and our lives uh, by your gospel. We pray that you would come and give us the help we need in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So um, I think uh, the ladies are studying Romans, right, in, um, in the women's Bible study on Fridays at 1 o'clock. Um, it's a great book, right? It's pretty easy when you're reading Paul's letter to the Romans here uh, to skim this paragraph and not really understand what he's saying. Um, this, this paragraph is part of Paul's thematic introduction to probably the greatest letter that's ever written in the history of the world. Um, basically, he's following his usual pattern of opening his letters. Simple introduction, right? From Paul to the recipient's greetings. Uh, that was fairly customary in ancient Greece and, um, and ancient Rome. In fact, every single letter that we have of Paul's in the New Testament starts with a similar greeting and with the benediction of grace to you and peace from God our Father. 
and the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, but this introduction actually has much more in it than any of his other letters. Uh, maybe it's because he was writing to the church in Rome and he hadn't visited there yet. He hadn't been able to introduce himself or his ministry yet. Um, but what we have in these verses is an introduction, not just of Paul himself as an apostle, but of the good news that uh, the good news about Jesus that radically changed Paul's life, right? And in fact, radically changed the entire course of human history. Um, and any seven-verse long run-on sentence might seem a bit daunting to unpack, so uh, let's just take it one verse at a time, and we'll focus actually just on the first four verses. Uh, verse one, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle set apart for the gospel of God. Uh, so Paul introduces himself first as a servant. Uh, literally, it's a slave of Christ Jesus. Jesus owns Paul. Jesus decides what to do with Paul. And maybe uh, you're used to hearing Jesus Christ, right? Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ. No, he, he says, of Christ Jesus. You're used to Jesus Christ as if Christ was his last name, um, which it's not. Paul here says he's a slave of Christ Jesus, which is meant to emphasize the fact that Christ is more properly a title than a name. Uh, Christ is the, the Greek word that translates the Hebrew word uh, Messiah, right? Messiah or anointed one, the one who is prophesied to save and rule over God's people. So saying Christ Jesus is like saying Savior King Jesus. Uh, so Paul says, I'm a slave of the Savior King Jesus. And I'm called to be an apostle, a messenger, someone with a special status sent by God as God's spokesperson, uh, set apart for the gospel of God, for the good news that is both from God and it's about God, right? God has good news for you. It's about who God is and about what God has done. And Paul says, I'm a servant, an ordained messenger, a herald of that good news. Uh, verse 2 that good news which God promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. So long before it happened, God had made many promises that one day there would be this good news. Long before it had happened. These promises were recorded in the Old Testament, the, whole, the Holy Scriptures that were written down by God's prophets um, over the course of hundreds of years. Um, so let's actually quickly look at a few of those promises. At the beginning of human history, whenever that was, at the beginning of human history, after the serpent had tempted Eve and our race had chosen rebellion against God, um, in Genesis chapter 3, God said to the serpent, uh, who is the devil, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So a human, the offspring of the woman, would one day crush the head of the serpent, crush the head of Satan underfoot. And in doing so, he himself would be wounded, but he would live. Then about 2,000 years before Jesus was born, uh, in Genesis chapter 12, the Lord said to Abram, 
Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So God promised that through Abram's family line, just some family, right, one of the families out of all the families, He chose this family, and he promised that through this family, all the families of the earth would be blessed. A few generations later, Abraham's grandson, Jacob, is blessing his son, Judah, in Genesis 49. And it says that the scepter, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the people's. So God's people were to look for this, uh, as the Bible calls him, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the one who would rule the nations. The obedience of the peoples would be given to him. Then about a thousand years before Jesus was born, God spoke to David, King David of Israel, whose ancestor was Judah. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, God said this to David, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers... You die. I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. So God promised that David's descendant would rule as a king forever, and that God would be a father to him, and that he would be God's son. Then, about 600 years before Jesus was born, when God's people were being oppressed uh, in captivity because of their rebellion against God, the prophet Jeremiah gave them the hope of their salvation. Jeremiah 23, we read um, in our Old Testament reading, Jeremiah 33 is very similar. I'm going to read from that, uh, verses 14 through 16. Behold, the days are coming declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. So God promised Beforehand, that David's descendant would save God's people and that his name would be the Lord, Yahweh, the one true God, is our righteousness. God's people lacked peace with God because they lacked righteousness. And God himself would provide that through this promised Davidic king. And God's people waited And they waited for this Messiah, the one who would be descended from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, who would rule the eternal Davidic dynasty, who would bless all the families of the earth, who would provide salvation through God's righteousness, and who would make all things right. And then uh, while they were waiting, one day the good news finally happened. In verse 3 of our passage, the gospel that's concerning God's Son, 
who was descended from David according to the flesh. So it's concerning God's Son. What's implied here is actually the pre-existence of the Messiah, his divinity, right? This is God's eternal Son. The Son of God has inhabited eternity with the Father and with the Holy Spirit, one God in three persons, enjoying perfect, loving, joyful communion. And when the time was right, the eternal, fully divine Son of God was born into the world as Jesus of Nazareth. It was a miraculous birth. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. He was born to a virgin named Mary. He was adopted by her husband, uh, Joseph. And so he was accounted, according to the flesh, his human nature, as a descendant of David. And in fact, he was the descendant of David who would rule forever, the Son of God, come to save God's people, who would be called, the Lord is our righteousness. The only problem is that the prerequisite for ruling forever is living forever. And, um, and Jesus died right there in front of anybody who cared. Right? In front of his enemies, in front of his friends, his followers, in front of his own mother, in front of the people who had most hoped for God's Messiah, for their Savior King to come. He bled out on the cross. He died a criminal's death. He was mocked and abandoned and doubted by everyone. And the world went dark like a a stage dimming in preparation for the final act. And he was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord. Jesus had been brutally tortured and killed. His body had been wrapped in about 75 pounds worth of uh, burial linens and spices on Friday afternoon. And he was sealed in a cold tomb until his friends came early Sunday morning to finish the, the rushed burial process. And when his friends arrived, they discovered the greatest news that the world has ever known. Uh, Jesus has risen from the dead. It was not a group hallucination. Uh, He was no ghostly apparition. God had raised him to immortality, immortality bodily. He was seen by hundreds of people. His friends ate with him. And at least Thomas touched his wounds. Jesus was raised with a body like ours, and yet uh, unlike ours in its glory. Now, um, if you don't believe that, then I'm sorry. Uh, I I don't mean that to provoke you. (laughs) I I really am sorry. I found myself hoping and praying this week that everyone who heard this good news about Jesus uh, today would truly know joy and peace in believing this gospel I can't take the time here to go through all the reasons why the bodily, glorious resurrection of Jesus is true and historical. There have been plenty of um, great books written defending the historicity of the resurrection. For example, the eyewitness accounts of the four Gospels that we have uh, in the Scriptures. If you can't bring yourself to believe in the resurrection, come and talk to me. Um, I'd love to talk to you. We can think through it together, or I can point you towards some helpful reading. But this morning I will say 
But if you don't believe in the resurrection, you should honestly question your reasons for not believing it. You should question your reasons for not believing it. You should investigate the claim properly, and you should ask God to show you the truth about it. Tim Keller, a quote that's in the beginning of the bulletin, says, I always say to my skeptical secular friends that even if they can't believe in the resurrection, they should want it to be true. If the resurrection of Jesus happened, that means there's infinite hope. There's so many reasons why the resurrection of Jesus is good news, and we'll be looking at some of those over the next few weeks. Um, So I hope that you'll return to join us and think about it some more. This morning, in our text from Romans, we see the good news that Jesus is the risen king. He's the Easter king. It says that the spirit of holiness, the Holy Spirit, it's another way of putting it, um, raised Jesus from the dead, and in doing so, God fulfilled all the promises that he had made to his people over the course of thousands of years. Now, when Paul says that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God here, he doesn't mean that when Jesus came back to life, he became divine, or somehow God adopted him as his son. Uh, he had always been divine, the second person of the, uh, the eternal trinity. He had claimed that status for himself implicitly, and explicitly several times throughout his life. In fact, that's the main reason why the Jews wanted him dead, right? He made himself equal with God, which they considered blasphemy. Uh, Of course, it would be blasphemy if it weren't true, right? Uh, In which case, if it weren't true, you shouldn't pay any attention to Jesus. We have names and places for people who claim to be divine, right? Um, But Jesus was divine from the beginning. So Paul isn't saying that he only became divine upon his resurrection. He's declared to be the Son of God. Um, And he doesn't just mean that the resurrection was a testimony to his deity, right? As if now his status as the eternal Son of God was really made known. Uh, the, The Greek word that's translated declared here it really never means declared any, anywhere else that it's uh, used in the New Testament. It always means something like appointed or constituted. So there's a sense in which at his resurrection, Jesus was appointed to be the Son of God. And to understand this requires actually a, a biblical uh, Old Testament background understanding of the meaning of the phrase, the Son of God. Um, Paul sees in the resurrection the fulfillment of all those promises about a human. A human who would one day come and set things right. Right? Especially those promises made to David about the king who would come from his line. The messianic king who would be a human, a descendant of David, would be called the son of God in his humanity. And in Psalm 2, the messianic king the one who is anointed of God, says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. So the Messiah would rule over all things forever as a human who was decreed 
to be the Son of God. And that's why Paul can say in his speech in Acts uh, chapter 13, we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David... After he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, he fell asleep, he died, and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Therefore, let it be known to you, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him, everyone who believes is justified." So when Jesus rose from the dead, something new happened, something that had been promised long before, but that was only fulfilled when he strode forth from that empty tomb. Jesus, the divine Son of God from all eternity, was declared to be the human Son of God by his resurrection with with power to reign over an everlasting kingdom. The risen Lord Jesus Christ as a human descendant of David was crowned, he was inaugurated, he was enthroned as the king of kings, and he was called God's own son. It's the title and the relationship that's enjoyed by the Messiah, the Savior, and it's enjoyed by him as the representative of God's people. Several times in the Old Testament, God refers to his people, his corporate people, as his son. Exodus 4, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. Jeremiah 31, I am a father to Israel. Now, if you read the Old Testament with any measure of scrutiny, scrutiny, you get the distinct impression that Israel was not a good son. Israel was not a good son. They turned away so quickly from their allegiance to God, from from the intimacy and the communion that they had with God by his grace, they looked to all sorts of other things in life to get their love, to get their pleasure, their good, their security, their significance. And where the people of God have always failed to fulfill their destiny, failed to live up to their family name as sons and daughters of the king, The high king has succeeded. He has been the perfect son. He has been the perfect human. Tom Schreiner says, If Jesus is God's true son, then membership in the people of God depends on being rightly related to Jesus. You are a son or a daughter of God only by faith in God's son, in the true son. And Jesus is that true son. He's the one who, as a human, fulfilled all the hopes of humanity, lived up to true human potential. When God raised him from the dead, Jesus took up his power to save his people and to subdue his enemies, and he began to reign as the firstborn from the dead. Literally, in verse 4 of our text, it says that Jesus' resurrection is 
his resurrection from the dead ones, plural. So there are all these dead and dying humans. Everyone who's ever lived, who's ever died, whoever will die, and Jesus is the first one of us all to come back to life in this way. Glorious, powerful, immortal, perfect life. Jesus is the firstborn of the dead. He's the Easter king. He wields power over life and death. And Jesus is called, the Lord is our righteousness. Which is to say the same thing that Paul said in Acts chapter 13. Through this man, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is justified. If you believe in him, if you place your trust in him, then your king stands for you in heaven. Your sins are forgiven because he suffered under God's wrath for them. He paid the penalty for your rebellion with his blood on the cross. And you are justified, you are counted righteous by his perfect record, by his right standing with God being credited to you. The resurrection, then, is God's stamp of approval on Jesus' life work. It's proof of God's acceptance of Jesus' sacrifice on your behalf. It's proof of God's acceptance of Jesus' righteousness on your behalf. Because Jesus was raised from the dead, you can be sure that if you're in him by faith, you're counted by God as worthy of heaven, worthy of eternal life, worthy of blessed communion with the God of holy love. Not because you're actually worthy in and of yourself, right? but because the Easter King is worthy. And he has substituted his worthiness for your unworthiness. Because Jesus was raised from the dead, you can be sure that if you trust in him, one day you also will be raised from the dead, like him, into glory, when there will be no more pain or sorrow, where everything is finally set right, the way that it's supposed to be, the way that God has promised that it will be for thousands of years since we ruined it all by our rebellion. That's the gospel of God concerning his son. That's the good news of Jesus Christ. That's what drove the Apostle Paul to give his life as a slave to the Savior King. The good news of the Easter King is what elicits our faith and our obedience, Paul says. It's what compels us to proclaim his name among all the nations. It's the grace of God to us that brings us peace with God that can never be taken away. So put your faith in the gospel of the risen Lord Jesus Christ this morning. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, when your son was on the cross and said, it is finished, he was not lying. Through his death and through his resurrection, you have done everything that is necessary for us to be reconciled to you. We pray that um, our hearts would be warmed by this truth, by your love, by your grace. We pray that joy would dwell in our hearts. 
because we know we have everything promised to us through the, the life and the death and the resurrection of our Savior, Jesus Christ. We give you glory for who you are and for what you've done in this world. Uh, in Jesus' name, amen.